Hello, my friends, and welcome back to Idle Chatter. I'm your host, Ray Bohax, the hot rod farmer from New Jersey. And hopefully everything is going well for you. And this show is going to drop the um, day before Thanksgiving. So I want to take just a moment and I want to tell everyone in the audience how sincerely thankful I am for you. And uh, it is an honor that you choose to spend this time with me and to bring me into your home, your car, your truck, your farm shop, your tractor. And I just want you to know that I am very grateful for all of you. And it is just a, a wonderful blessing to be able to communicate with you and the emails that you send me and the pins that you give me in my map. It's just a uh, been a humbling, humbling experience the past few years with the podcast. So I just want to thank you all for that. And I just want to let you know that I wish you all a blessed, blessed Thanksgiving holiday. And I know in other parts we have listeners around the world, but in other parts of the world, they're not celebrating Thanksgiving this week. But I was always a firm believer that every day is Thanksgiving. So, but it's nice that in the United States, and I know in Canada, they have it a little bit earlier, I think at the beginning of October, that they set aside a day to to be grateful and not let the busyness of life just uh, over overrun and put to the back of your mind the, the blessings that the Lord gives us and just the gift of uh, the gift of life, the gift of eyesight, the gift of movement, uh, just a, a wonderful thing and it's good to it's good to be thankful and I just want you to know that I'm very thankful, extremely thankful for all of you. And on that same theme, I have to thank Mr. Gary Harrier from Ithaca, Michigan. For he contacted me and he gave me a pin in my map, the first in the Ithaca area. And to tell you the truth, I, there's an Ithaca, New York, but I never knew that there was an Ithaca, Michigan. So thank you so much for that, uh, Gary. And thank you for being a longtime listener of the Idle Chatter podcast. And on today's show, I'm going to do something different. I did this once before, and it's going to be a show of... Uh, special delivery letters so that uh i have a number i have i think three letters here i chose but they're, they're going to require a little bit more of a lengthy explanation and gary from ithaca one of the letters or the first letter i'm going to have in the uh, hopper here right is uh, from him so we're going to do that today and i always like to uh I, as i always said is that even if your letter doesn't get on the show i always get back to everyone because the whole premise of this journey is to help to educate the American farmer and rancher and those who have problems with their machinery to the best way that I could possibly do that. So that is what we're going to do today. Now, I also need to apologize. I've been saying this for three weeks now, but I've been, I've been sick the past week and uh, I did not did not do another toolbox test. I need to get that done. So there will not be a toolbox test today once more. And um, but I had last week I, I was sitting at my desk and all of a sudden my head started to real feel real funny. And to make a long story short, not to complain because uh, is that uh, I got a severe case of vertigo. I couldn't even, I couldn't get out of bed for more than five or 10 minutes. I mean, and it was, it was terrible. I mean, everybody in their life has been dizzy at a time, but this was vertigo. I just feel like I was like, like I was going to fall right over. And then the, uh, 
the room was spinning and it was terrible. And I ended up going to uh, the doctor and Dr. Pollock over here in Hackettstown, who's a wonderful, wonderful otolaryngologist, ear, nose, and throat man. And he um, is a very, very dedicated doctor. I mean, the true essence of what a doctor is. And I was getting better at that particular point, a little bit better, but I'm still not feeling right. But it really, I mean, I was dysfunctional for six days. So if I don't sound that chipper or don't sound that enthusiastic, please know that it is not the desire of my heart. I'm always excited to get with you and to know that you are taking the time to listen to me. But uh, when you feel under the weather, you feel under the weather. So I, I ask in advance for your apologies for my poor delivery of the show today in advance. I always apologize first and uh, and then also for not getting another toolbox test. So I hope to be doing that, but I am going to be working on my, I guess it would be third annual, uh, Hot Rod Farmer, What to Buy the Hot Rod Farmer in Your Life Christmas Gift Guide. So I'm going to put that ahead of the toolbox test and hopefully I will get that out over the Thanksgiving weekend. And uh, there will be the podcast, and then there will also be an article on the website that Sue Moore will put together. I'll give her all the information. She'll make it pretty. And on the, the, on the website, will be, uh, will be, will you will be able to get links to these companies and these products and what have you. So I enjoy doing that. I know that I've gotten a lot of positive feedback from the audience over the years of people who've invested in some of those products and i try to do um i try to cover the whole gamut if you're if you're new to idle chatter and if you're new to my show then the podcast the christmas buyer's guide podcast and the articles are are archived on the website so there was one for 2018 2019 2020 21 this is going to be the fifth one so that's uh that's crazy so uh, I launched a show on October 25th of 2018. So I did a Christmas show that year, and that's why it comes up being five, because I did it. Uh, it I did it immediately. But you know, look back at those old shows and those old website articles with the gift guides, because n- none of that expired. I mean, the price may have changed. And what I try to do, as I started to say, and I brought myself off onto a tangent, is that I try to identify tools or pieces of equipment in different price ranges that the hot rod farmer in your life and maybe yourself you may end up buying it for yourself i know some people contact me and say hey, i bought that thing for myself i love it and you know that you know not the typical fare that you'd see oh here's a flashlight or here's a socket set and maybe it is a socket set but something unique about it so that is what that is all about so please go back in the archives and look at that and also keep in mind that those archives are up all year round so it's not something that it could be a christmas gift for someone it could be a birthday gift for someone in june or july or it could be something that you just want that you want to look back and say geez you know what kind of tools are in there maybe i need something in my toolbox or my farm shop so that is uh, what it is all about so god willing that will be up pretty soon excuse me <clears throat> And uh, let me see what that that is. uh, That is basically it. So what we're going to do, and I hope, I sincerely hope that you enjoy this. Like I said, I've done this before. I did it on the radio show, Fall Machinery Digest Radio on Sirius XM, different letters a couple of weeks ago. And uh, hopefully you enjoy this today. But I, you know, lots of times these responses need more details 
and I don't want to take up the whole show with it, so that's why I put them aside and do a, a separate a separate show dedicated to it. So without any further ado, because I'm rambling right now because my uh, head is all over the place, we're going to start with Mr. Gary Harrier's letter, and I will read you his letter. So he goes, Hi, Ray. Not long ago, you mentioned that some people are having problems starting their older engines after they have been sitting for a couple of weeks. You mentioned about today's gasoline being engineered to be used in a closed system, not a carbureted engine where it can evaporate. I have started using recreational fuel in my small engines like my push mower, chainsaw, and weed trimmer, anything that does not get a lot of use. It costs a little it costs a bit more and has higher and has a higher octane. I think it is around 90 instead of 87 and no ethanol. It says the exhaust smell reminds me of the drag strip. Smells like horsepower. That's what he put in parentheses. I'm going to try using it in my John Deere 318 garden tractor this winter that I use for blowing snow. It has the same problem starting after it sits for a couple of weeks. I tried like you suggested and sprayed some carburetor cleaner through the air intake and it takes right off. It's just not convenient to get access to it. I have taken the top part of the carburetor off before and it has gas in the bowl so maybe it just needs to be taken apart and cleaned. <clears throat> Excuse me. I would like your opinion on the recreational fuel and also the pre-mixed engineered fuel for two cycle engines that they sell in stores for $20 per gallon that claims to have an extended shelf life. I really enjoy your podcast. Keep up the good work. All right. Well, thank you so much, Gary. Thank you once more for not only a pin in my map in Ithaca, Michigan, but thank you for uh, being a longtime listener and for writing in. All right, so I'm going to hold this letter in front of my hand as I'm as I start to answer this. All right, now I am not familiar with the term recreational fuel. I'm very familiar with canned fuel, which is what you were talking about. That which works out to be about twenty dollars a gallon. You could buy rice gas for that, right? Twenty dollars a gallon. But I'm not familiar with the term recreational fuel, or at least it's not a term <clears throat> that I'm exposed to back here in the northeast of New Jersey, Pennsylvania, New York region. All right, so I don't know uh, exactly what that is, but I'm assuming it's probably an ethanol-free blend or something of that that particular instance. So it, moving forward before I give you my thoughts on this, if I do not answer your question properly, then please feel free to reach out to me at Hot Rod Farmer at FarmMachineryDigest.com and or anybody else that is listening, if you could shed some light on it, and I, I'm, not, I'm not responding properly to the recreational fuel thing because I'm not familiar with what it is, then please also feel free to reach out to me and email me and educate me. All right, so now let's talk about this John Deere 318 contract. They were nice tractors. So uh, I think they were made in the 80s into the 90s. And they, they, may, have had a, <clears throat> they may have had a Kohler engine. So uh, I had a John Deere, it wasn't a three, it was a two series, 216, I think it was. That had a um, two-cylinder Briggs. I think, I think it must have been 16 horsepower, who knows. But I don't remember, I bought it brand new back years ago. All right, so now the problem that Gary is having is that he says after the tractor sits for a couple of weeks that he has trouble starting it, uh, the initial start off. 
But now he said he's taken the carburetor apart and there seems to be gas in the bowl. Now, let's back up on that because I'm just working off of this note. So what's going through my mind is that I'm assuming that you took the carburetor, the top off the carburetor, and saw gas in the bowl before trying to start it. So we're going to make that assumption. I don't think that you started it and then drove it whatever 50 feet or 100 feet and then said, I'm going to take the, take the top off the carburetor and see if there's gas in the bowl. Now, keep in mind that the, f- the fuel level in a, any carburetor, the float bowl in the carburetor, fuel level is going to be paramount to how the circuits respond. So even, so even if there is gas in the bowl, that does not mean that some of the fuel did not evaporate. Now, there's a term that I've used on this show many times, and it has to do with all carburetors. It's called pullover, that the carburetor starts to pull fuel. And what pull fuel means is that a low pressure region is created in the in the venturi area it may not have a booster venturi a booster is a is a, another ring within the venturi on any carburetor sometimes smaller carburetors don't have a booster sometimes they do there's a zillion different carburetor designs they all follow the same tenant of engineering but there's different designs but the venturi principle is the same so it's the hourglass shape and that hourglass shape is what's going to do is speed up the airflow through the carburetor which is going to which is going to create a low pressure region and then the way the carb a carburetor works is that you have atmospheric pressure on the float bowl and you have a lower pressure region in the venturi and the the, the lower pressure region is created by the movement of the pistons so the pistons moving up and down are creating a low pressure region we call that a vacuum in engineering a vacuum is anything less than atmospheric pressure and then that low pressure region so in the industry the colloquialism we say that the carburetor pulls fuel well it's well actually the piston is pulling the fuel through the carburetor or you could say that the car that the atmosphere is pushing the fuel through the carburetor because if you have atmospheric pressure on the float pole a low pressure region all right then it's at the atmospheric pressure is pushing it but the, the the colloquial term that we use is the pulling fuel so i'm going to use the colloquial pulling fuel but it's actually the carburetor is not pulling fuel the piston is pulling fuel through the carburetor so but we'll use that term because it's common just like people say motor oil well a motor is electric or steam it's not with combustion and so but still you go to the store and it says motor oil doesn't say engine oil so now the thing that's coming into my mind is that what you wouldn't really need to and then i'm going to give you what i think is a simple fix for this what you're really going to need to do is to determine if you were so inclined to take the float to take the air horn back off the carburetor is that is the is the fuel bowl full or did some of it evaporate out because there is gas in it that just means that the bowl is not completely empty so let's say arguably i'm just gonna clear my throat excuse me so let's say arguably that the float level is supposed to be one inch using easy numbers and the float level is at seven eighths of an inch because an eighth of an inch of fuel evaporated out of the bowl so you would look inside the bowl it'd be like looking at check account say yes there's money in a checking account but you have a thousand dollars in a checking account you want to write a check for two thousand dollars that's not going to work 
So the thing is that if some of the fuel evaporated out, then what is going to happen is that the low pressure region that is being created in the Venturi is, by the cranking of the engine, the movement of the pistons is not strong enough to pull the fuel up that conditional eighth of an inch. And that's what you would call in any carburetor called pull over. So for that engine to start, and this has nothing to do with a John Deere 318, it could be a 68 Ford, it could be whatever, it could be a drag race car, it could be whatever you want it to be with a carburetor, is that you have to create a low enough pressure region to be able to pull the fuel at the level that it is in the float pole through the main metering circuit and the and the idle circuit because it's a cumulative effect on a carburetor for it to start and run. So right now it's inconclusive whether there is enough fuel in the bowl for it to pull over and get that engine to start and run. Okay, so that is something that we need to determine. Now, the, the second thing basically is that we have to look backwards and say if the low pressure region is is created by the movement of the pistons in the cylinder and the opening and the closing of the valves it is very common for an an older engine like this with a mechanical cam meaning a flat tappet type i mean a uh, non-hydraulic cam for the valves to go out of adjustment now keep in mind is that you could have an engine that runs impeccably I mean, once you get started, runs beautifully, idles, does everything perceived to have the proper power and what have you, and have excessive valve lash. And if you have excessive valve lash, the canary in the coal mine for that is going to be a decreased amount of low pressure or the uh, decreased vacuum during cranking. So cranking engine vacuum is going to be lower. So thus, the signal in the booster is going in the venturi i keep using the booster because you usually talk about automotive style carburetors with a booster in the venturi <clears throat> but the signal in the venturi is going to be weak and then if that signal is weak in the venturi then it is going to not be able to pull the fuel that initiate fuel flow all right so that is that is another concern now if you've never adjusted the valves on that tractor you should adjust them regardless i don't think it's too i believe that's a Kohler engine but i don't think it's going to be too too bad to adjust the valves on it but that would be a good is that going to fix your problem who knows but the thing is that that's something to keep in mind is that it all begins with the sweeping of the piston through the bore and if the valves have excessive lash on them, then the valve timing is going to be late and it's not going to open as far and it's going to become very critical during crank. And don't get fooled into thinking, well, you know, the engine runs fine once it's going. So now if you put together that you have some fuel evaporation and also that you have um, some excessive valve lash. I'm not saying that the valves are not opening whatsoever because obviously once you get it started, you're cutting the grass with it. So the thing is that you put that all together and then you have a no start or a hard starting condition. And as an aside to this, that's why something like a snow blower and a lot of engines or backup generators have a have a, a, have a rope start, a pull start, and they have an electric start because what will happen is that the electric start 
for instance, on a snowblower engine, very common, or on my like my Briggs and Stratton backup generator has a pull rope and an electric start. Electric being has a battery and a cranky motor. Obviously, if the power's out, you can't start it off the, the line voltage in the garage, right? So the thing is that the cranking speed is much higher with the electric start than it is with the pull rope. Now, obviously, a John Deere 318 doesn't have a pull rope as electric start, but that is why they have that because in the winter time or if a, the engine is not, I don't want to say neglected, but whatever, is that you'll get a much stronger signal in the venturi because of the higher cranking speed than you would pulling it with a rope so keep that in mind now the other thing you're saying is that that maybe the carburetor needs to be clean i'm not going to deny that all right now inside a carburetor you have well you have the throat of the carburetor the external part and what you could see and then there's all the passages inside the thing is it would spray carburetor cleaner you could go and you could clean up those external passages that you could see down the throat of the carburetor butterfly to choke the other thing keep in mind make sure and i'm assuming that you did this make sure that the choke is fully closing because the purpose of the choke on the carburetor is to to amplify that low pressure region inside the venturi and because of the low piston speed during cranking so the choke is make sure that choke plate is functional and and closing all the way because without the choke plate closing you're not going to have even if it's tuned up perfectly you're not going to have a a strong enough signal to pull a sufficient amount of fuel and give it give it enough richness because the vaporization rate for gasoline is very low at 60 degrees fahrenheit it's only about 50 percent vaporization rate which is a vapor turning from a liquid to a gaseous state then if it's cold in the winter in michigan ithaca michigan you're not going to be pushing snow at 60 degrees right (laughs) so uh you're going to have even poorer vaporization rate so now does it need to be clean maybe maybe not who knows right what i would do if there were my tractor i would go and then i'll get to your other question about the 20 dollars gallon gas what i would do is i would go around the carburetor make sure everything is snug and tight and make sure the carburetor is snug to the intake manifold and make sure that the carburetor is the intake manifold is snug to the cylinder head i would adjust the valves on it on the engine I would obviously make sure that we're going to assume the choke was all working fine. I would clean the carburetor, all right, and then I would go from there and see what's going on. The thing basically is, is that you're saying it sits for a couple of weeks. If it sits for a couple of weeks, then I'm assuming that it starts, so if you started it today and you cut the grass today and then two days later you need to have it cut again and you're going and you go to start the tractor and it starts relatively easily then i would say that you have no internal problems in that carburetor and what you're just after a couple of weeks you're suffering from some normal evaporation but let me know about that but i'm assuming based upon your letter now what what i would basically do is that i would get a habit get into the habit of running a good complete fuel systems cleaner through through every tank of gas i mean i use chevron tecron complete fuel systems cleaner i buy in a walmart for four dollars and 84 cents for i think it's 10 or 12 10 ounces or something you put an ounce per gallon so if you have five gallon can you put five ounces in it and you constantly run it through there because as i was talking about the valves and i said this on the show also i mean other episodes is that and every engine will build intake valve deposits 
And those intake valve deposits, even if the valves are adjusted properly, will impact the airflow into the engine, will, will decrease its power. You're not complaining about that, but will also decrease that signal during crank. So if you were to run the complete fuel systems cleaner, not only will it clean over time, over time, it's not going to take 20 years worth of carbon off with one gallon, with five gallons of gas, over time, clean the intake valves, clean the piston crown, and that will clean the internal passages of the carburetor that you will not be able to get to unless you were to take it apart and soak it. So let's put this in some semblance of water. So what I would say, as I said, I would tighten everything up. I would run the valves on the engine just to run the valves. I don't know when you did it last or ever did it, all right? I would run the valves. I would run something like Tecron through my gas from now on into perpetuality, all right? And I would see how it starts. If you still have that issue with it starting, then what I would say to you is that the proper way to do it, and you know, a lot, I mean, this is, you know, lots of times you have to try to balance things in life. I mean, you can't go crazy with this. You just want the thing to start and cut the grass and blow snow. So you can't spend your whole life with it. Old John Deere lawn tractor. And uh, the thing, the proper way to do would be to take the carburetor air horn off and measure the float level all right but let's forget about that we're not going to do that if none of this is to any avail it doesn't help you i am quite sure that you could take the tube of the carburetor cleaner you don't have to take the air cleaner inlet off what you could do is take the tube of the carburetor cleaner and spray it in to where the air filter resides you may get that element a little bit wet but remember the thing is that you need to that that carburetor cleaners would be, be be atomized which is still liquid in small particles and then the engine will suck that in just enough and may you may have to go two shots and then try to crank it and then two shots again with the carburetor and then the thing lights off and it runs fine without you going crazy but what i personally think is happening based upon this i don't think there's anything wrong with the carburetor i think you're getting a certain level of evaporation out of the bowl which is natural normal all right the choke may not be closing fully and uh that's that's an issue and i think that you probably have carbon deposits on the valves and your valve lash may be excessive but after you do all of that, if it runs fine, otherwise spray some in through the air intake. You don't have to take the whole air intake off. I would use carburetor clean in lieu of starting fluid. Starting fluid is very hard on an engine. And and let me know how you make out with that. And then she should light right off. So uh, that is uh, basically, and I'm assuming that the cranking speed is good because usually your ears could tell you that. But uh, all right, so that is that. Now let's go on to the other question here. That's why I'm doing a special show on this because I want to give in-depth knowledge. Uh, it says, I'd like your opinion on re the recreational fuel. I don't know what it is. Uh, the pre-mixed engineered fuel for two cycle engines that they sell for $20 per gallon. I would not waste $20 a gallon. All right, personally, that's my personal opinion. When I did some spots for successful farming on TV, and uh, I was on their show, you may know, for six or seven years, I did a thing about canned fuel, and I did some some, some empirical testing. I mean, nothing, no laboratory testing. And I ran my weed whacker off with my lawnmower, everything like that. And I saw no, no difference whatsoever other than my pocketbook being lighter. And the thing is that, now to get back to your question over here, 
that they say it's 90 octane instead of 87. Remember, I did a show is that that is that is that motor octane or research octane? Who knows? Um, because if it's the pump gas is R plus M divided by two, which is an average, which is research and motor divided by two and it's an average so if this is so you're saying it's 90 octane but if that's 90 let's say research octane that may be the same thing you're getting in the pump gas so, so what well, i wouldn't worry about the octane all right and as a farmer and as an american and as a patriot i would not worry about the ethanol we've had nothing but e10 in new jersey since about 2001 or two early 2000s uh, let's say 15 years because they removed uh methyl ethyl butyl ether out of the gasoline which was an oxygenate because it's they always say it was use the same words it's nasty stuff then they used ethanol as an oxygen oxygenate we've been running stuff for over 20 years or 20 years on ethanol based gas e10 which i believe is what you have in michigan zero 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 issues with anything then you're always gonna have some of this that hot rod farmers for what i had whatever all i know is we've had nothing but e10 here i would not be afraid of e10 all right and the thing is that also as far as the shelf life is concerned you have to look at how much fuel you use so i know that that over here on the farm that i have a john deere um, d110 i bought a new in 2017 and uh, i'll you'll get five gallons of gas for it in a gas can i put the tecron in it and i uh, you know it'll last maybe two weeks or two and a half weeks or whatever depending on how much grass how often i cut the grass usually in the growing season i cut the grass once a week i probably end up cutting four to five acres maybe not five acres a little bit more than four acres around the house here around my parents farmhouse down by the cornfield by the well the front field along the road we have all these names for different things you want to know what that is the front field but anyway um so never had any problems now the thing is that if you are worried about storing gas then what you could do is you could buy a fuel uh, a fuel preserver product uh, they call it a stabilizer i you have a lot of people swear by them i don't use them uh i don't use them never had any issues with it but if you're worried about what i'm trying to say is that during the season that you should not be concerned with having you're not going to have you know nine or ten or twelve or thirteen or fourteen month old gasoline and if you are ending up having that because you're not using that much so instead of buying five gallons buy two gallons and then use it up quicker but if you want to put a stabilizer in that's fine uh, you're not going to hurt anything i don't know if it's going to help you but i don't think that there's any reason why you should spend 20 dollars per gallon for gasoline and the supposed benefits of what they're saying i'm not going to say that they're not that they're lying to you but it's whatever i, I really don't think it brings any tangible value for that price differential nothing whatsoever so i think i covered all of this uh, i got your letter here i think i covered all it if i didn't then just reach back out to me and let me know how you make out with that john deere and give her a good wax job right for the winter so they were nice tractors those john deere 318s all right so the next letter we have here is from joe and this is kind of fuel related also and it says i have a 2021 ford expedition that is brand new it has about 800 miles on it and i took a took a trip 
uh, took a trip from New Jersey, he's in New Jersey someplace, to West Virginia with a trailer carrying four side-by-side UTVs to go four-wheeling. Well, that's a pretty nice load on there, right? Because I don't know what size UTVs, but side-by-sides, they're probably pretty big, and it must be a pretty good-sized trailer. But anyway, so to save money, I filled up with regular gas. And he says it's approximately a dollar less a gallon than premium in New Jersey. Since the manual said it could run on 87 octane, the engine is the 3.5 liter EcoBoost. The truck ran fine, but only got eight miles per gallon on the eight miles per gallon on the way down to West Virginia. I ran that tank dry and filled it up with 93 octane in West Virginia. On the way home, it got almost 18 miles per gallon on the same roads. My question is. Why such a difference, and should I use premium fuel all of the time? Okay, so I want to thank you so much for for writing in, Joe. And obviously, you either listen to the podcast or the radio show. You didn't identify which, or maybe both, right? Hopefully, God willing, both. All right, so get yourself a cold drink of water, everybody. Get a cup of coffee, whatever you need. Try not to fall asleep, but this is going to be a little bit probably more of a or of a response to Joe's letter than, than you would care for. All righty. The thing basically is this. Now, there's a lot of dynamics going on here. Now, I'm assuming that, that, that the truck was driven both ways with the same level of authority or aggressiveness or what have you. So in essence, for instance, let's say that you're going down to West Virginia and you're leaving late and you want to get there to get the hotel and you're running 80, 85 miles an hour and then coming home, you're running 65 miles per hour. Well, that's going to make a substantial difference in the fuel economy. Let's say arguably you're running down to West Virginia and you're bucking a headwind and you're going 80 miles an hour. That's going to make a substantial difference in your fuel economy. Matter of fact, using as an example, my Ford Little Ranger, not that it happens to be a Ford, but when I went down to get my first load of fertilizer down to the mill in Maryland, to Ben Hush in there, to get my tote, had... I had never fought such wind with that truck I have. It's a 2002 from almost 19, well, 19 years then, right? I mean, they were, they, the tote was empty, and I had to downshift a couple of times on, on, on Interstate 81. I was from 5th to 3rd because I was bucking such a wind, and going down there, and I fought wind coming back with the tote, the liquid fertilizer in it, which was quasi heavy, maybe 16, 1700 pounds. And I had to do the same thing. So for that whole route going down to Maryland and back, I averaged like 21 miles per gallon only. I've never gotten 21 miles per gallon in that truck. Usually on the highway it gets 31 miles per gallon. So anyway, even with the toting it. <clears throat> so the weather conditions have a lot to do with it. And then the driving conditions. So I guess if you left late and you're trying to get down there because you want to get to the hotel and you're pushing hard, when you put a trailer on it, put a lot of weight on it, remember that on any engine, whether it's a gasoline engine, diesel engine, what have you, is that there's a... I don't what's uh, there's a specification called brake specific fuel consumption and you would never see that you, you determine it on a dyno it's a abbreviated BSFC and what it happened what BSFC is the amount of fuel in pounds to produce one horsepower for one hour 
So the more thermally efficient an engine is, it'll have a lower brake specific. That's the slang we use. What's the brake on it? So arguably, if you had a very efficient engine, let me put it this way. Let me back up so this will make more sense for you. Is that, uh, let's use easy numbers. So if you have a brake specific of 0.5, that means it's going to take a half a pound of fuel and gasoline weighs arguably about eight pounds to a gallon so it's going to take a half a pound of fuel to produce one horsepower for one hour so it's so all right now the thing is that so if you so that's 0.5 now let's say you that that you have a engine that has a brake specific of 0.5 now the next guy has an engine that has a brake specific of 0.4 so that means his engine is only going to use four tenths of a gallon, a tenth of a gallon less, to produce one horsepower for one hour. So that is a design criteria of the engine, and that's why today's engines today have high compression ratios, because the easiest thing to make an engine thermally efficient, which would be fuel efficient, is to raise the compression ratio. So, and that is why a diesel engine, even though it's diesel, I guess it does a brake specific, and whereas a diesel have a much lower, which is good, more fuel efficient, less fuel, lower brake specific, it may have 0.29 pounds of fuel to make a horsepower for an hour. So now, the thing is that if you have, so you have, let's say a thermally efficient engine, which the echo boost is i think it's around 10 to 1 compression ratio even without the i mean even though it's turbocharged and now you're going down the road and we're going to use that and we're going to use the uh the half a pound and and spray specific will vary slightly but for our for our i mean uh, during the rpm band of the engine for our but for our discussion we're going to keep it the same so now you're going down the road and you're pulling this trailer you're going so if you're going faster what's going to happen is that you have to produce the engine has to produce more horsepower so it has to produce more horsepower to go 80 miles an hour than it would 60 miles an hour so the thing is that even though the, the thermal efficiency of the engine stays the same you are needing to produce more power so it's going to use more fuel you're bucking ahead when it's going to have to produce more power more more power it's going to use more fuel so you put that all together and it's like having excuse me holes in your pocket and your money is falling out and your fuel economy starts and starts to go go down the drain so now in essence that is a design criteria of an engine to make it thermally efficient now but that explains why when you go faster it not has nothing to do with the fastness as the idea that you have to make more power all right so the other thing that comes into play is that the energy content of the fuel now if you happen to have gotten a load of fuel in new jersey all right that has uh, a lower energy content you say why well basically in essence the I don't want the government, whatever that may be today, who knows what the government even is, right? Is that uh, mandates that the fuel, that regular gasoline will be around 121,000 BTU of energy per gallon, British thermal units of energy per gallon. But that varies because it depends upon the refinery it came from, it depends upon the crude use, but the target that they're shooting for is 121,000. 
So now, if you got fuel that had 117,000 BTU of energy, well, you're going to get a little bit better gas mileage. Are you going to go from 18 miles per gallon down to eight? No. All right, but you're going to get a little bit, of, or not bad, a little bit. Of, if you had 117, excuse me, I said it backwards, you're going to get worse gas mileage. All right, so there's the dense, and then we call that the density of the fuel. And that's why in the engineering community, when they road test vehicles, uh, they're doing a calibration, doing they buy fuel three, four, five thousand gallons at a time. So four General Motors, whatever, they'll have tanks in their facility like a gas station, and they'll buy five thousand gallons of fuel at the same time. And this way, what they'll do is that all of their test data will be on, and they'll take a. <clears throat> a fuel density test on that fuel and they'll write it all down so they have accurate test data because they're not going to check it like like the consumer does okay we're over here to this pump it took 12 gallons this is a different oh, different density so they want to have a constant and in agriculture if you're doing a plot test you'd call it a control so you want to have a constant but what we do is as uh, in the real world we buy gas here we buy gas there even if you buy this gas at the same station all the time the density of fuel is going to vary with his load with the loads that he gets for the reasons i already mentioned all right so it could be conceivable that you got a very low density fuel and i know in my own my own vehicles my own car my own pickup truck i could tell whether i got a low density tank of fuel so if i fill it up and the driving conditions are more or less the same and i'm doing the same route and i said geez i only went about 100 miles on a quarter of a tank instead of 120 or 130 i know i got low density fuel all right so now so that's something that we can't keep so maybe arguably you got really low density fuel coming down and then coming back you got higher density fuel by happen chance now historically believe it or not higher octane fuels usually have less density less energy than regular grade 87 octane because in most instances the components the chemical components that they use to increase the octane steal some of the density and if they're using ethanol ethanol has less density than than uh pure gasoline so it has less energy content slightly so but this is a wild card so we don't know what's going on here but now the thing that does come into play is so let's say to put some to try to put some clarity to this the weather conditions going and i'm talking about like wind and stuff like that the weather conditions going down were, were basically the same as coming back up all right so the only the, the driving style if you were going 80 90 miles an hour and whacking it coming out of the toll boots it was the same all right all right you didn't get caught in nature everything is the same <clears throat> so the only difference now is that we have 87 octane fuel versus 93 octane fuel in the tank now keep in mind that if you are we spoke about brake specific if you are running the engine hard because of the load on it it's going to run more boost to make more power now modern engines for the past 30 years probably even a little more than 30 years have what they call a closed loop timing control so they have knock sensors and what the knock sensor is is a piezoelectric accelerometer it's electronic tuning fork and i think the echo boost engine has four knock sensors two on each side of the block and what it does is it listens for detonation how and detonation listens for knock how does it determine knock 
Well, what happens is that when you have this abnormal combustion event in the cylinder, you're going to have a shock wave that's going to go through the piston, the connecting rod, the bearing, what have you, and it's going to create a frequency. So the knock sensor, as I said, is like a tuning fork, and what it's going to do is it's going to listen for this, and it's going to respond, just like if you have a tuning fork and you hit the desk where it goes, remember they had those in school when we were kids, or you hit it lighter. So with the frequency, the output is going to tell the ECU that this engine is detonating, knocking, abnormal combustion event, all right? It all depends on what you call it. This depends where in the piston's location it's going to happen. So it's, we're going to use the word abnormal combustion event. To the layperson, you say it's pinging, all right? You would not audibly hear that because what will happen is that the knock sensor will be retarded the timing. So now, the thing is that when you retard the timing excessively, most of the time, you're going to feel it as far as power is concerned. But with a turbocharged vehicle, it could end up running a pound or two more boost, and you would be you would be on uh, you would be naive to this. But the important thing that I want to explain, and this happens not only on a Ford or Echo Boost, this is any engine with a closed loop timing control system. The actual specifications may be different; they probably will be different. But there's a phenomena called the hysteresis of knock. Now, when an engine goes into an abnormal combustion vent, historically, the piston crown becomes superheated. So what the hysteresis of knock is that, so let's say, let's assign some numbers to it. You're going down a road and it's got 10 degrees of advance. So the timing is 10 degrees before top dead center and the knock sensor hears some detonation. Now, the earlier systems, this is with old style, almost analog, just move, well, probably digital, analog, digital ECUs back in the 80s, all right? They were able to take the timing out, and this is a GM spec because I was very intimate with their systems, at a rate of 100 degrees per second. Now, that doesn't mean that you took out 100 degrees of timing. It's the rate that it could pull the timing out. And the way and I when I used to teach this, people used to get confused with that. And I used to make an analogy to a drag strip. A drag strip is 1,320 feet, all right? The first clock that you break at the end of the drag strip is what they call the ET clock. That gives you your time. 60 feet after that, there's another light beam, and that's what they call a mile-an-hour clock. So if you went to the drag strip and somebody said, here's my time slip, I went 13-2 at 108 miles per hour. The 108 miles per hour is calculated the last 60 feet. So the ET clock, the first light stops the light, stops the clock, and then the time it takes the vehicle to go for those 60 feet is what calculates the mile per hour. So the only thing, just like as a farmer, you have a yield mind. You can say, well, right over here, I got 500 bushels. Over there, I got 300 bushels. Over here, I have 400 bushels. All right, so the mile an hour is calculated at the last 60 feet. And why I'm telling you this, because it's a good analogy, I feel it is, for understanding the rate with the hysteresis of knock so it's it has the ability so you're saying well i'm going 108 miles an hour all right right but you're going 108 miles but you only traveled 60 feet you didn't travel a mile you didn't travel 108 miles so that's the speed so the speed that it could respond used to be 100 degrees per second it may only take out 15 degrees but the rate 
that it takes it out at would be 100 degrees per second if you let it go for a full second. So hopefully that makes sense. So now what will happen is the back to the hysteresis of knock that you will go and that you what will happen is that the piston crown becomes superheated. So as soon as the closed loop timing system hears a knock, all right, you don't hear it. Not a, it says, okay, the tuning fork, fork shook. It says we're going to take timing out. So what it does is it takes out a bunch of timing it doesn't say okay geez let me take it oh it's a 10 degrees let me take it eight and bring it to nine and see if it still knocks that takes out a ton of timing and that's in the calibration table and then it leaves that timing out for a number it counts how many strokes or of the book counts how many revolutions of the crankshaft because it wants the piston crown to cool off because if you put the timing if it put the timing back in and immediately the piston crown would be too hot and you would have auto ignition of the fuel prior to the arcing on the spark plug so that is so the hysteresis of knock says that if the timing only really needed to be taken out one degree we take out 20 degrees let the piston cool for so many cycles of the crankshaft and then we start to put the timing back in half as quickly as we took it out so using 100 degrees per second we take it out at 100 degrees per second we listen okay what and this is what the calibration is this is what calibration engineer says that it does so he this engine may have it needs 50 rotations at a crankshaft before we start to put time back in another one may say we need 200 another one may say we need 10 all right a lot of different parameters here so the thing is and says okay now we we got that parameter they call it a flag we met that rotation of the crankshaft now instead of taking it we took it out at 100 degrees we're going to put it in at the rate of 50 degrees per second so we're going to put in two knock two no i'll knock two and then till we get back up to what the calibration table is so now that that's as clear as mud to all of you the thing basically is is what i'm trying to establish is that with a closed loop timing system if you're constantly bouncing off that hysteresis of knock because it's seeing some detonation, some abnormal combustion, the timing is going to be way retarded for a long period of time. And that is going to remove a lot of fuel efficiency from the engine. So the thing basically is that to what what I think happened here. What I think basically happened is that your truck was new and you were probably a little bit more aggressive driving it down than you actually thought it was, that you were. Maybe not. Maybe I'm, I'm blaming you for something. I think going down, you had low BTU fuel, low energy content fuel, and possibly it was not even 87 octane. It may have been 86 oct- octane. It may have been 85 octane. I, it wasn't 80 octane. But at that particular point, when you're pushing an engine hard and you're running boost, is that a one one octane is going to make a difference because it's going because of that hysteresis of knock and constantly pulling the timing back out listening waiting and putting it back into the slow rate and then starting it all over again it's almost like a a jacob's ladder which you know a climbing arc where you, where they take the where they have a transformer they shoot the arc across and then it gets to the top of the arc and the transformer doesn't have enough oats to because they arc because the two rods the two electrodes as it goes towards the top you should see them in a frank Frankenstein movies, right? And then climb, and they call it a climbing arc or Jacob's ladder, and then it comes back down. 
all right, to the to the lowest level and works its way back up and comes back down. So what I think what's happening is that you are constantly bouncing off the hysteresis of knock going down there. Now, 87 octane fuel may have been fine if it were truly 87 octane. All right, but if it was 86 octane and you start to get into that knock zone, then all bets are off, buddy. And I think coming home back to New Jersey, when you filled it up with the 93 octane, that you were not bouncing off the hysteresis of knock. And so the question now that begs to be, be that I cannot answer is that should I use premium fuel all the time? I guess it would depend upon how you drive the vehicle. So if you drive the vehicle a little bit more aggressively and you want to use that 370, I think it's 375 horsepower, that engine or close to it, 400 horsepower. If you want to use that all the time and you're constantly letting it build boost, you're constantly doing this and you're a little bit more aggressive with the throttle, then even though it's a, almost a dollar a gallon more, you probably will see a, a substantial fuel mileage increase because of the because you're not evoking the hysteresis of knock if under normal conditions you drive it and i'm not saying that you can't step on the gas but you drive it more sedately then you probably would be paying a dollar a gallon for octane that it doesn't need and is not using so what i would do moving forward is we need to get some more data i don't believe there's anything wrong with the vehicle I think it was just a set of circumstances and then try to use this and try to get some more data and say, hey, and you and because you're not buying fuel at 4,000 gallons at a time and doing test data, you're buying at different brands, this, well, same station, same brand, but different loads. You're going to have to keep some record of and say, hey, this thing average is usually 17, 18 miles per gallon on, on 87 octane. It averages 18 point five on 93 octane and average is the same on 93 octane then you would know and what you may end up doing also is saying if you're going to be make a habit of towing something of this magnitude or towing a travel trailer you may say when you go to tow it you may want to use the higher octane fuel specifically if you're going to be running higher speeds up mountains passing what have you but it all comes down to that so basically in essence I don't believe there's anything wrong with the truck. I think it was a combination of of low density fuel and possibly a little bit lower in octane than what you thought you paid for. And I think that you got better fuel coming home. And I also thought that think that it was bumping into the hysteresis of knock. And maybe maybe if you didn't put 93 octane, you put 87 octane coming home, but it was a, a, a better 87 octane, you would have gotten the 18, 19 miles per gallon on one trip, inconclusive data. All righty? So best of luck with your new, I was going to say, suburban expedition. And I'm sure that everything will be fine. And uh, I ran a lot of... Uh, road tests a lot of echo boost engines and i know we're driving them normally you could run them on 87 octane and there's zero issues whatsoever fuel economy if you're going to be running them hard and they can be running boost all the time and in boost those hair dryers are spooled up you would want the higher octane so that you're not bouncing into hysteresis of knock Alrighty. now that everyone's head is spinning we have our last letter for today and this is from harry so he says, I found your show on rural radio and I listen each week, but now, but now only have, but, 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 but uh, let me, I guess I didn't write it. Uh, 
I, uh, he may have respectfully may have written this clearly. I found your show on Rural Radio and I listen each week, but now I have subscribed to the Idle Chatter podcast too. Thank you for all the great information you provide. I think what he's trying to say is that he found me on Rural Radio, listens there and listens to the podcast. So thank you, Harry. So he says, I have a 2008 Galena Combine with a SUSI, S-U-S-I, that's a brand of engine. I believe they're from Finland. SUSI six-cylinder engine. Obviously, it's a diesel. Someone told me that after a certain number of hours, the harmonic damper must be changed. I never heard of this. Is this true? Thank you. Okay, Harry. I did a show about two years ago about harmonics and harmonic dampeners and what a lot of people don't realize is that for the most part the harmonic dampener even though to your eyes nothing is moving inside it's not moving back and forth like a valve or a rocker arm or a camshaft or a crankshaft is that the, there's many different designs of harmonic dampeners some of them have like a gel material some have a rubber in them so but the whole i the whole premise of the harmonic dampener is to be able to absorb the harmonics which is vibration the harmonics that are that uh, that are inputted into the crankshaft from the firing events and from the and the, and the reciprocating mass the rotating and but reciprocating mass so the piston is going towards top that center boom it comes into the stroke and then it stops and dwells and comes to a screeching halt and goes the other way so that all puts a vibration which in engineering we would call harmonics and harmonics are identified with a frequency to us we say oh it's vibrating we feel it or don't feel it, but it's a frequency so to answer your question is that over time and over use whether it's hours of operation miles on a road vehicle or calendar years all right that historically the harmonic damper becomes less efficient at absorbing and actually quelling quenching those harmonics and not allowing them to beat up the crankshaft beat up the connecting rods beat up the bearings and it is very common on a larger diesel engine for the manufacturer to require you know like cat i think cat says every five thousand hours or something don't hold me to it so to answer your question yes it is very common for on a diesel engine for the harmonic dampener to have a specified change interval now whether it's i tried to do see if i could find some information on the susi uh engine in the 2008 gleaner and i was not able to so the thing what 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 i want you to do is that i want you to confirm whether susi recommends changing that dampener and they most likely do i don't i think you said that the that the uh engine has about 2960 hours on it and uh so they may say it 2000 hours change a dampener they may say every 10 years change a dampener they may say if that engine goes into a mining truck or oh, I, I it's it's going to be manufacturer specific but but it is never a bad idea for you to put a new, and the same thing on a gasoline engine so if you're rebuilding a whatever a 350 chevy for an old grain truck or a 302 ford or whatever this thing is 20 years old got two three hundred thousand miles on it and you're rebuilding that is that to put a new dampener on it 
all right because if it's the rubber material if it's the gel like i said nothing lasts forever all right so nothing lasts forever so the, the uh, anything that's man-made doesn't last forever and if and what will happen is that the efficiency the efficacy of the harmonic balancer will will sneak will de will decrease over time and it'll sneak up on you on the engine like gray hair all right you look in the mirror one day oh my god i turned all gray which is what i did so the thing is that over time it's going to start to lose its efficacy as far as quenching these harmonics now once you start to put you may not feel it in the cab with a combine you may not feel it in the pickup truck the car the semi what have you but the crankshaft and the bearings are going to feel it and you end up could end up breaking the crankshaft so the thing is that so my suggestion to you is see what the what 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 Gleaner says, what the Susie people say, if they say X amount of hours to change the damper, I would definitely change it. And if they say, well, you know, there's, there's, no, there's no known service interval for the damper, if you were to do something and have the engine apart, it's never, it's never a bad idea to put a new damper on it, but there's the caveat that I am going to tell you that you're not going to like that most people in the audience are not going to like because they're going to say well i don't care whether it's a detroit whether it's a cat whether it's a ford whether it's a chevy or whatever it may be is that most people are going to want to buy an aftermarket damper and i would say don't do that i would not trust the diesel engine in my cleaner combine or the engine in my ranger pickup truck 2.3 to 4 cylinder to a chinese made aftermarket damper because it fits on there because it looks the same on the outside it's got nice shiny paint on it does not mean that it has the proper design there's a lot there's a there's a whole engineering i don't want to say discipline <clears throat> called nvh noise vibration and harshness and just like we spoke about the knock sensor with the with the ford expedition with the fuel economy is that the damper is tuned to a certain frequency for that engine and there's a lot of mathematics and there's a lot of science in it. So let's say arguably you went to Gleaner and they say it's $642 for the damp. And you go, whoo, $642, nothing even wrong with this, looks fine, right? But that hot rod farmer says, I'm going to buy it, or I should buy one. So now you go home or you go on your phone and you go on the internet and you find, oh, dampeners, uh, dampener company plus from China. And uh, they say, Susie dampener for all cleaner combine. And it says uh, $92. You say, well, I'm buying $692. I got one for $92. Well, I would not do that. All right, because by the time you find out that that after, and it may not be, maybe it's half the price. I'm being ridiculous here. All right, but half the price. And it's very, very... Um, appealing to try to get something for half the price specifically when you perceive that it's not even broken that it's just you know hey you're changing it because you're changing it because the book says to change it is that i would not do that because there are plenty of engines over the years that i've seen gasoline engines that have been destroyed by a a the wrong harmonic dampener and what i mean by wrong it doesn't it, yeah it fits on there it's got the right bolt holes the the the, the, the it, it fits onto the crank the keyways in the right position all the visuals are there but it's not it is not taking and dampening the harmonics in that crankshaft and then you go 
metaphorically down the road or through the field and then a little bit from now whether it's six months whether it's a year from now two years now all of a sudden boom and the crankshaft breaks and you don't want to bust the crankshaft on a diesel engine a combine in a in a in a tractor you don't want to bust it on a on a on a on, on anything all right so please you know, a, there's a reason why these parts cost more. Is the dealer marking it up a little bit more? Probably is, but he wants to make a living. He's got to make a living, and this is not a consumable purchase. It's not, even though it's rated as a consumable in most instances. They say it's so many hours replace the damper, but the fact of the matter is, it's not something like fuel that you're buying every day. It's a one-time investment, and I would definitely, definitely so to recap to bring closure to this for you. See what the Susie people say. If they say to change it, then I would change it at the prescribed time. I mean, you don't have to say, you don't have to be in the middle of the field, you're cutting, cutting corn. It's, oh my God, they said 3,000 hours and slam on the brakes and shut the combine off and change. I mean, within reason. I mean, so if they say 3,000 hours, change it and you go 3,100, 30, whatever, you know, you get done with harvest, that's fine. Right. The thing is that, but I would definitely change it if they and if you're going to change it then i would buy one from gleaner or from susie direct an oe one and not an aftermarket replacement one if you are forced to buy an aftermarket replacement then try to buy one from a reputable company what is a reputable company who knows anymore all <laughs> right so the thing is that but that is what i would do and then if there is no service interval for the damper. You may say, well, that's great with my combine, but I have a Cat C13 in my uh, in my Peterbilt that I use to haul grain, and that and, and Cat may say to change that damper. All right, so the thing is that I believe Cat used to, I think at 5,000 hours or 500,000 miles, I forgot what it is. But look that up, see what they have to say, buy an OE damper, and if it, there is no service interval for it, then if you ever are in there and you have it apart for some particular reason, you're never going to hurt the engine by putting a new damper on. So, for instance, you have that damper off for whatever reason, you're taking the timing cover off to replace an oil leak, a seal, an oil leak. Then again, if you said to me you're going to buy a cheapo internet damper, and Susie says you don't need to change it, but now I say, oh right, said that we should. If I have it off, might as well put it on. It's fifteen years. I'll put a new one on there. And you know, lots of times because it's a new part doesn't mean it's better. So what I'm trying to say to you in a politically correct way, and I'm going to go non-politically correct now, is that if you have, if there's no requirement service until for the dampener, it's 10, 15 years old, you happen to have it off and you want to replace it. If you're going to buy a cheapo damper, don't buy it. Save the money, take your wife to dinner and put the OE damper back on. I guarantee it will be cheaper, I'm going to be, be better than the one you're buying cheaply from the internet. All right, so the thing is that and there's nothing wrong with the internet, all right? It's just it's a lot of bogus parts, and you know, and just because it looks the same, all right, that doesn't mean it's the same. We all know that. So that is my answer to you. So check that out and see what but anybody with all your diesel engines, you know, please, please, please look at the manufacturer's specifications for that because on almost every, you know, the rule of thumb basically, before I get ready to close here, the rule of thumb is that the lower the RPM of the engine historically, the less work the harmonic damper has to has to has to perform. But it still needs to be tuned to the to the to the frequency of the harmonics that are instituted into that or input into that crankshaft. So if you have a ten thousand RPM drag engine, 
that's a whole different tuning frequency than a than a, a, a cat 3406 and a peterbilt all right but still it needs to be tuned and i mean tuned it needs to be made to a certain specification so keep so keep that in mind and and a lot of people say well it's a low rpm engine doesn't make a difference it does make a difference it's just that it's tuned to a different frequency and there's many many diesel engines and gasoline engines but specifically diesel engines because now you're working this thing it gets back to the cylinder pressure just like we were saying with the brake specific fuel consumption or with with joe with the with the with the expedition but this is gets not brake specific fuel consumption but cylinder pressure if you're working this engine hard whether it's in a combine whether it's in a sprayer whether it's in a tractor whether it's when it's a semi going down the road then the cylinder pressure is higher and then the 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 freak the 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 dynamics is probably the best word for me to say of the harmonics from that cylinder pressure being instant being inputted into that crankshaft are going to change so the cylinder so the harmonics at idle are not the same as they are at 1800 rpm with 1400 degrees exhaust temperature with this bad boy matted and you pulling a load of grain up a long grade on i-80 right so it's a moving target and that's why you need to have the damper that is proper for it but keep in mind that a harmonic damper does wear out and also you need the before i close you need the proper tool to remove it and you need the proper tool to install it and the proper installation tool is not a mallet and a block of wood whacking it onto the crankshaft all right so you need the tool to press it on to pull it off and to press it on it's not a, a, a block of wood in a mallet is not as prescribed tool to uh to put a harmonic damper on any crankshaft so just keep that in mind all right listen i want to thank you so much i hope that you and truly hopefully hope that you enjoyed today's show it was a little bit different i my goal is to get back with a toolbox test and a regular subject well next week god willing is probably going to be the uh is going to hopefully be the uh the christmas show with christmas gift guide show for the hot rod farm in your life and get back to having another uh listener's letter and a toolbox test so listen have a blessed blessed thanksgiving and know that the hot rod farmer is pulling for you the american farm and rancher and my beloved beloved america you be well may the lord bless and keep you and i apologize for being a little bit under the weather today thank you bye-bye